Father God, we thank you this morning for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which changes our lives. And Lord, as we kind of prepare our hearts this morning for Advent and for the Christmas festivities and celebrations, I pray that we would be reminded once again what, we're, what it's all about. And so, Father, Lord, I pray you would work in the words that I'm about to say. Father, I pray that uh, they would uh, encourage our hearts this morning. May we be uh, changed into the image of Christ in this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want to state the aim of this Advent series here at the beginning, uh, as I'll do over the next couple of weeks. But my aim in this Advent series is to help you be amazed by the miracle of Christmas, by helping you see what the New Testament writers saw in the Old Testament, thereby causing your hearts to be more captivated with this Jesus. Say it again. My aim in this Advent sermon series is to help you be amazed by the miracle of Christmas. Like we are all, uh, every year, uh, it feels like there's this, this, this rush of Christmas excitement and then before you know it, it's over. And the Christmas blues have set in. And what I hope to do through the next four or five weeks is to help you be amazed by the miracle of what actually took place that first Christmas day by helping you see what the New Testament writers saw in the Old Testament, thereby causing your heart to be more captivated with Christ. And thus the title of this sermon series is called Hints of Hope, Jesus in the Pentateuch. I'm going to break this down for you so you can see where we're going over the next four or five weeks, starting with the subtitle, Jesus in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is just a fancy word. It simply means five books. It is the first five books of your English Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these five books were written by one man, Moses, whom God used to set his people free from slavery in Egypt and led them to the promised land. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses put pen to paper for you and I and wrote five books, all telling one story. And the underpinning of this entire series of sermons is this one thought. The point of the story of Moses was telling across the Pentateuch is that there is coming a Savior. There is coming a Savior. Moses, of course, did not know the name of the Savior, and yet we know his name is Jesus Christ. So to say it more plainly, the story Moses was telling across the Pentateuch is Jesus is coming. Therefore, the subtitle is Jesus in the Pentateuch. If the, five main, if the, if the main point of these five books is that Jesus is coming, then we as the readers should be able to see in, these, in this book pointers to this coming Savior. Which is why the overarching title of the series is called Hints of Hope, because if you're a Christian, perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time, you might be thinking to yourself, I've always been told that the writers of the Old Testament were pointing to Jesus, but I just, I just Pastor, if I'm being honest, I can't see it. Outside of a few small promises that God makes, but when I read the Old Testament overall, all I see are different newspaper clippings about David defeating Goliath, Joshua marching around the walls that magically fall down, this weird story, which I personally love, about teenagers getting eaten by bears for attacking a preacher. But pastor, if I'm being honest, I don't really see Jesus in there. 
And if we're not careful in our reading of Scripture, we will miss the point entirely. If we read the Bible as if it's an answer book to all the questions you might have in life, you will be left sorely disappointed and maybe not even believe in the gospel. And yet there is a way of reading the Bible in which we can see Jesus on every page. I don't know if you believe this. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. You see here Jesus arguing with the scholars, with the Pharisees, with those who should have known he was coming. And I want you to see what he says here. John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus rebuking scribes of the Pharisees. It says this in John 5, 39. He says, you search the scriptures, which at this point the only scriptures that have been wrote were the old, was the Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. You see, Jesus is saying in this verse that the very scriptures that these scholars were studying so that they might have eternal life, he says, those scriptures are all pointing to me. This is Jesus himself looking at the scriptures and saying, listen, you should have seen it. You should have seen it. Flip back to John chapter 3. One page there maybe for you. John chapter 3. We all know John 3.16, know it, love it, we should. But the, what leads up to John 3, uh, 3.16 is more important, I think. Look at John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man named, uh, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things that you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now think about this passage for a moment. Nicodemus ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus at nighttime under the cover of darkness, and they have this conversation uh, that's that, that kind of weird, right? If you think about it, it's like, uh, how can somebody be born again? Is he going to crawl up into his mom a second time? Can't be possible. And Nicodemus asks in verse 9, how can these things be? And do you know what Jesus does in verse 10? He rebukes them. He, re- he rebukes them. He says, you, you are a teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things. Now think about this. Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for not realizing that the Old Testament is about Jesus. So the Old Testament must have spoken enough about Jesus and his coming to warrant a rebuke from Jesus. Like if you read it and you never got around to seeing that Jesus is the main point of the Old Testament and Jesus is going to rebuke you for that, there must have been enough evidence to warrant a rebuke from Jesus because Jesus is kind. Jesus never sins. And here he, he rebukes Nicodemus. I was thinking about this last night. Uh, 
This is not like a husband who goes and opens the fridge door to find the ketchup in the side of the fridge where he can honestly and mistakenly miss the ketchup and a rebuke from his wife is probably not warranted. This is not like that. Rather, this is like a man who walks into the kitchen and says, where's the fridge? Do you see the difference here? Last one, flip over to Luke chapter 24. Again, just a couple pages to your left. Luke 24, Jesus, after he's ascended, uh, he meets with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're, they're, they're downcast, they're, they're, they're distraught. Because the one that they thought would be the Messiah has died. And Jesus rebukes them in verse 25, Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, by the way, he's referring to the Pentateuch. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses here, Jesus directly referring to the Pentateuch. And here he is showing these disciples on the road to Emmaus how the scriptures speak of him. And so the reason I've titled this series Hints of Hope is because as our own experience has taught us, a lot of times we're quite unsure of how to actually approach the Old Testament. We as Protestants often view the Old Testament as being about laws and judgment and wrath. And it is about those things for sure, but it's about much more than that. You see, it's a story about laws and grace. It's a story about forgiveness and judgment, a story about love. And wrath. You see, the Old Testament, rightly understood, is a story about hope. I want to give you just over the course of the next few weeks hints of that hope from the Old Testament so that you can be amazed by the miracle that happened at Christmas by helping you see what the New Testament writers saw in the Old Testament, thereby causing your heart to be more captivated with Christ. So let's go all the way back to the beginning Genesis chapter 1. I started the sermon by saying that the main point of why Moses was writing the Pentateuch is to point his readers and hearers to the hope they have in God's promises. So I want to spend the next 32 minutes of our time together walking you through this creation narrative to help you see Christ in this story. So Genesis chapter 1, if you're there with me, say amen. If you need more time, say I need more time. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, pause there. The very first thing we see about this God is that he is a creator. He's a creator. He creates things as opposed to not creating. See, Moses wants his readers to understand that God has created the world. As opposed to anything else creating it, this God has created it. This, of course, means what for us? This means for us that since this is God's world, he is the one who is in control and in charge, not us. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 2 is probably the most overlooked, sidelined, passed by, skipped over verse in all the creation narrative. You see, verse 2 is probably the most significant and massively important for actually the rest of the unfolding of this chapter in the next. You see, if you are a reader and the author has just said that the earth was without form 
and void, then what are you looking for to come next? You're expecting God to then form and fill it. And isn't that exactly what God does next? You see, in day one, God creates the light. In day two, God creates the waters and the sky. In day three, God creates the land. So so what is God doing in these first three days? He's forming it. He's forming the world. Do you see this? What happens next? I bet he fills it. You see, he creates the light in day one, but in day four, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. He fills fills it. In day five, he creates the birds and the fish, which correspond to day two of him creating the waters in the sky. He creates the waters in the sky, and then he fills those waters in the sky with birds and fish. And in day six, he he creates the dry ground. He creates the land. Or in day three, he creates the land. But in day six, he creates creatures and all the things that creep upon the earth. And he creates humans. But notice Moses here drawing your attention to this special creation of humans. Look at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now let's think about this language that Moses uses here. You see, he's telling us that in God's creation of mankind, he has given them a special purpose. Like look at the language he uses. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue. Now doesn't this sound a whole lot like verse 2? Sounds a lot like forming and filling. Subdue and fill. Be fruitful and multiply. And that makes sense because we are told that that Adam and Eve are are made in God's image. And so therefore, as an image bearer of God, they should then do what God did. Which is form and fill. And so God forms the world and then fills it. And he puts man, he puts, uh, man in the world and tells him to go form it, subdue it, and harness its potential. So, so understand this, brothers and sisters. The reason God created you is for this purpose. So many Christians I see dying and withering on the vine of their life because they don't understand, why did God create me? He created you for this very purpose. Be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue. Have dominion over all the earth. So you and I are supposed to subdue and fill the earth. This, of course, in some sense means uh, make more image bearers. He's saying be fruitful, multiply, have children. This is a purpose of why we created, because as image bearers, they will then uh, image forth God. But it's more than that. This is more than just having kids. This is also uh, that, that in anything and everything we do, We should do all to the glory of God. This is vitally important for us to understand today. You see, God didn't make us a certain way. Uh, God didn't just make us a certain way, but he made us a certain way for a certain purpose. All of life is supposed to reflect God's glory so that when you and I look around the world, we would be reminded and pointed back to God, to him. In all of this creation narrative, we see... We should not see God as being separate from his world. Rather, he is there with his creation. He's in the presence of, he's in and amongst his creation. 
And we'll see in a few moments that he is with Adam in the garden, talking with him. He isn't far removed. He isn't separate from his creation. He's there with it. Vitally important to actually understanding what Moses is trying to point out to us. This is important because the ancients would think that God was present where? In the temples. It was expected that when you went to a temple, you would see God. But not just that. When they would go to a temple, they would find in that temple an image of their God. Right? This would be a statue that is an image of that God, an image that represented their God. Now this is fantastic, right? Because here we have the creation narrative. And we have the world, which is in fact a temple for God. Because in the world, his presence dwells. But in this temple, we don't have a statue with an image on it. Instead, we have a person with an image on it. We have a person who is in the image of God, his creator. And the first thing, the first thing that we find out about this person is that he is in the image of his God. This means that it is our job as image bearers of God to represent him and reflect him in all of creation. You see, God didn't create you and I out of a great sense of loneliness or need of anything. For our God needs nothing and he changes not. So then the reason why God created us in his image is so that we would all the more bring glory to his name. Have you ever seen what happens to a, a light beam as it's reflected at a, a, at, an angle, at a mirror of 45 degrees? You know what happens? You got a light beam, you got this mirror at 45 degrees. What happens when that light shines down? It shines out. Shines out. And so God shining his light down on man, uh, man as a 45 degree uh, angled mirror is supposed to shine out that light. That's your role and my role in the world is to shine the glory of God in all aspects of our life. But not only that. You see, what happens when the light hits back at that 45 degree angled mirror? It goes back up. It goes back up. You see, God's glory is we as image bearers are the image of God in God's temple in the world. And he has given us glory that we reflect out to everyone around us. And we reflect it back to him. The point is that we were made in a certain way for a certain purpose. Look at Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now notice that something strange happens here in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now, hold on, pause, wait a minute. Didn't Moses just tell us that God created man in his image? He did. So what's what's Moses doing here? You see, the way that we read the scriptures matters. If we read the scriptures as a running uh, camera that we've taken on our iPhone, right? Start at point A and just let the film roll, then we'll miss the scriptures entirely. But rather, the scriptures are not like that, but rather the scriptures are like a documentary. Moses is telling us a story, remember. He's telling us a story that a Savior is coming. And so what Moses does here in this documentary of the Pentateuch is he presses pause, rewinds, and zooms in on this creation narrative. Verse 7, chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
And the man became a living creature. Now, now think about our language from uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 2. Forming and filling it. Here you have the Lord God forming the man and then filling the man with his breath, his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Now notice, we often call this garden, we call it the Garden of Eden. But in verse 8, it's actually a garden inside of Eden. That's what it says in verse 8. A garden in Eden, in the east. Now, if you are familiar with the temple structure at all, then you know that inside the temple was a holy place. And inside that holy place was the most holy place. So Moses here is intentionally showing you that the tabernacle and the temple are supposed to be what? And the, rest of the new, and the rest of the Pentateuch, as, as the commands are given to build the tabernacle and the temple, it's supposed to be a copy of the world before the fall. It's supposed to be a copy of the way God lived and moved and communed with his people. So if you read the rest of the Pentateuch, you will find that when they are constructing the temple, they are deliberately copying the way the garden in Eden was. This is massively important because in the temple is where people meet their God. It's in the temple. The temple and the tabernacle was a reminder that the whole world, before the fall, was the place where you met God. The temple, then, was a deliberately short-term pointer back to the beginning when God was with his people. And it was a foreshadow of Jesus' coming and him declaring that he is that temple. He is now the meeting place where you meet God. This is why Paul, when talking about the church, says that you and I are now the temple. Why does he say that? Because, because God lives in us. The temple is where God's presence is. And so Paul looks at the, the, the Ephesians church, or, and, and he says, when he's talking about the temple, he says, you are the temple. You see, God used to fill the world, and then he filled the temple to teach them what the world used to be like, but actually now he fills you and I. And our bodies become as a temple. You say, ah, pastor, is that really there in Genesis chapter 2? Look at verse 10. It is, it's all here. Chapter 2, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Now, notice this, this, this word gold here. There's a couple words that Moses could have used to describe this gold. And yet he uses this particular Hebrew word that describes the gold. Do you know where else this gold was described? The same word for gold? This is the same gold that describes the instruments that were later put into the tabernacle in the temple. Not only that, how many times did God say, let there be, in Genesis chapter 1? God created, he said, let there be light, and of course there was light. How many times do you think God said it? Seven times. Seven times in the creation narratives, God says, let there be, and there was. When God is telling Moses to build the tabernacle and all the instructions on how to do it, it's seven times that he says, and let there be. You see, this is very, uh, what Moses is doing is drawing us into the story of God's grand narrative. 
The temple and the tabernacle are a copy of the way the world used to be and the way the world will one day be again. So if the whole world is like a temple in this creation account, and Eden is like a holy place, and the garden is like the most holy place, you got the world as a temple, you got the the Eden, which is the the holy place, and then inside of Eden you have this garden, which is the the most holy place, Then, then what does that make Adam? Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So if the whole world is a temple and Eden is the holy place and this garden inside of Eden is the most holy place, this makes Adam's role one of a priest. It makes him one of a priest. And, and, and notice in verse 15, his, his job description here is given to, to work and keep it. Work and keep Now, you won't know this from your English Bibles, but every time these two roles are given, work and keep, work and keep, they don't always appear this way in the English Bibles, but every time these two Hebrew words appear in the rest of the Pentateuch, it's always, every single time, used to describe the function and the duty of the priest in the temple. You see, Adam was given the job description of a priest. Now, now what is that job? Well, later on, there would be sacrifices that would need to be made, but, but for now, there's this, there's, this, there's this thing about eating, right? Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You see, here in verse 16, after he puts him in the garden, he's given the command to eat this, but not that. Eat of this tree, but, but not of that tree. You see, this man was put as the high priest in the Holy of Holies. And and notice, who does God give these commands to? Look at verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Who's given this command? It's Adam. Well, what about Eve, Pastor? Eve's not created yet. It's Adam alone who has given this command. So later, if Eve learned not to eat of the tree, who did she learn it from? She learned it from Adam. Because Adam was the priest in this holy of holies. This isn't because God doesn't like women. God loves women. Designed them, made them, formed them out of Adam. This isn't because God doesn't like women. It's because he has a different job for women. And people do best when they are doing what they were designed by God to do. So verse 17, he's told you, you can't eat of this tree of good and evil. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. Why couldn't they eat of this tree? Have you ever thought about that? Why couldn't they eat of this tree, this tree of good and evil? Well, because they were supposed to go to God. They were supposed to go to God to learn good and evil, right and wrong. And so the tree here symbolizes an attempt to figure out wrong from right by themselves. And really, if we're honest, all the sin that you and I commit is the same sin of eating of that tree. Like every time you sin, you are in some way saying, I think I know better than God. I think I know what's right in this situation, in this moment. Look at verse 23, chapter 2. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Who 
is Adam and Eve's mother and father. Think about it. Think about, how, think about what Moses is doing here in this passage. Who is Adam and Eve's mother and father? They, they literally don't have one. They don't have God. Yeah, of course God. But they don't have a mother and father. So what's Moses doing by putting this here? At this point in the story. Well, he's establishing here, as, as, as if it's a documentary, he's saying here, hey, you reader, you, the reason you leave your father and mother when you get married and when you uh, take a spouse is because he's establishing a pattern for you and I to follow. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, uh, when he's talking about Christ in the church, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says that this is, this is a mystery of the gospel. You see, two things were told about man in, in Genesis chapter 2. Number one, that he's made in God's image. And number two, that, or in Genesis chapter 1, made in God's image and, and made male and femaleness. This is why the wildness of the world actually doesn't make sense in the Christian context where they say there is no distinction between maleness and femaleness. It's in the very created order that God designed. There's a difference between maleness and femaleness. So much so that Paul actually weds it to the gospel. He says that it, looking at marriage, when a man leaves his mother and father and, and cleaves to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. He says that's actually a picture in real life of the way Christ loved the church and the way that our union with him is formed. But he calls it a mystery. Why does, why does Paul tell us that? Paul tells us that because... You don't know that from Genesis chapter 2, right? You can't read Genesis chapter 2 and be like, ah, yeah, that's definitely a picture of Christ's love for the church. You, you can't see that. So Paul calls it a mystery. But now that we know it, now that we know it, we can't ever read Genesis chapter 2 in the same way. Again, it's like watching a movie, a thriller movie where there's all kinds of things that don't quite make sense in the beginning of the movie until the end of the movie. The plot line is revealed and the grand story is finally told and and now you can never actually watch that movie in the same way that you watched it the first time. You see, all of this was a pointer to Jesus. A pointer to the time when a high priest would come and be a greater Adam, be a greater high priest. You see, Moses is foreshadowing a Savior who will come. But then Genesis chapter 3 happens. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now who's the serpent? Who's the serpent? Anybody? Satan. Satan. How do you know that? Have you thought about that? Like how, do you, how do you know that this serpent is Satan? Anybody know? Revelation chapter 12. It's not until the end of the book that, uh, you know, John, as he's writing in Revelation chapter 12, he says, yes, that great deceiver, Satan, the serpent, right? It's not until the end of the book that we actually find out that this is Satan. But think about this, this serpent for a moment here. Serpents are, are, are what kind of creatures, clean or unclean? They were unclean creatures, which means what? It means the serpent should have never been in the garden to begin with. You see, it was the high priest's job to make sure unclean things stayed out of the temple. And so at some level, Adam has already failed in his priestly roles. And you know this by the way that Moses actually spends the rest of the Pentateuch anytime snakes are brought up. So Genesis chapter 3, verse, look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Remember, who did Eve learn the command from? From Adam. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one cause question. Why is it not until after Adam eats the fruit that both of their eyes were opened? Notice, look at verse 6. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then, after both had eaten, then the eyes of both were opened. Why did it wait until after Adam had eaten? Why would everything fall once Adam ate? Because it was his job. You see, it was Adam's job to teach his wife the way and the commandment of the Lord, that it was for their good and for God's glory that they not partake. And so it wasn't until after Adam had eaten that both of their eyes were opened. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now notice, who does the Lord go to first? It's Adam. He goes to Adam first. Right? Oftentimes we read verse 11 uh, as if we're from Texas. We read it in the plural sense, and, and that's, that's understandable because... Uh, you in the English language can sometimes mean singular or can mean plural. But oftentimes we read verse 11 as, Have y'all eaten of the tree of which I commanded y'all not to eat? That's not what's here. It's the first person singular. You see, he's saying, Have you eaten of the tree? He's talking to Adam here. He goes to Adam first. You singular. He's talking to Adam. Why? Because they're even in the design of God's created order. Eve has this kind of protection and covering above her so that God goes to Adam first. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice that God curses the serpent here. What's interesting is he never actually curses the man or the woman. He says the woman will have pain in childbearing, and that, but, but he curses the ground because of Adam. But he never curses them directly, but he does curse the serpent here. And there's this interesting play on words uh, that Moses uses here. Right, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Offspring is one of these words that can be plural or singular. So you're not quite sure at this point whether it's singular or plural or what. It's like like sheep, right? You don't say, I got three sheeps. Something we're actually trying to teach uh, Marley to understand is the English language is weird. We're not quite sure. It's okay. Like you wouldn't say, I got three deers. I mean, if you would, you would just be wrong. 
so at this point in the English language, we're not quite sure if it's singular, is it plural, what's, what's actually going on here. But in verse 16, though, notice everything changes. He shall bruise your head. You get this third person masculine singular pronoun. He will bruise your head. It goes from could be a lot of people, we're not quite sure, one of the offsprings to one particular person. But is it one? Because in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, Paul's talking and he says, the God of peace, listen, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now understand, this is messianic language that Paul is using. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your plural feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So what's going on in Romans chapter 16, verse 20? We got plural feet. I'm glad you asked. Flip over to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. From the beginning to the end. It's the last book of your, of your Bible. Revelation chapter 12. What's going on in Revelation chapter 12 is a, is a commentary of what happens in Genesis chapter 3 and everything that unfolds from there. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 <clears throat> says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, like you should already be starting to have that messianic promise ringing in your, in your ears, because he says, In the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. You see, in verse 1, we have... We have the, this messianic language of pregnancy and birth pains and crying out in agony. In verse, verse, and I know we get all kinds of weirded out when we read Revelation. It's okay. Verse 4, it talks about like a third of the stars of heaven being cast down to earth. I don't know if you know this, but the, the surface of the earth can't actually fit one singular star. And if you, he's not talking about stars. He's talking about angels here. These stars that are being thrown down from heaven cast to the earth. He's talking about a third of the angels falling, referring to demons. But in verse 5, listen, she shall give birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. What does that sound like? Sounds like Psalm 2. Psalm 2, which says this, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's language. You see, what's going on in Revelation chapter six is, or chapter 12 is messianic. This is messianic language. This is big time. Look at verse 6 in Revelation chapter 12. The woman fled into the wilderness where she was, uh, has a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. See, what happens when this one who is born, Satan is there to devour him. What happens when this one who is born, Satan is there to devour him. This sounds a lot like 
Mary, doesn't it? It's like, is it talking about Mary? I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, it's messianic for sure. Look at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. You see, it says in verse 11, they have conquered him. Interesting. We have in this text both the singular and the plural. They who belong to him, in verse 11, is the seed, belong to the seed of the ones who conquer. So go back to Genesis chapter 3. We're almost done. My timer said I'm out of time. Genesis chapter 3. What's happening in Genesis 1 through 3, really 1 through 4, is the basic storyline of the rest of the Bible. You see, what Moses is doing is introducing you to all the main characters of the rest of the scriptures. Because it's the rest of the scriptures where everyone will fall into one of two categories. Either they are the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. Either they are of the seed sanctified by the Savior, or they are of the line who resist and oppose him. So look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. But the sweat, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you, you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice, he, he, again, as I mentioned earlier, he doesn't actually curse Adam and Eve. He curses the ground. Uh, he says that there will be pain and childbearing. But there's this promise nestled in there about a coming Savior who will one day crush the head of this serpent. But look at what happens immediately after verse 19. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and out at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Even in this Lord's response, we see provision. We see provision. They were exiled from the garden. And he sets up these angels to guard the entrance. And you get this, this first mention here of the cherubim, it is the cherubim there in verse 24 that he placed at the entrance in a flaming sword which turns every way. Where else in the Pentateuch is cherubim mentioned? Does anyone know? It's on top of the Ark of the Covenant. 
You see, these cherubims were set up to guard and to, to remind you you're no longer allowed into the presence of God. And so something happens in this Holy of Holies. And as Moses is thinking and writing uh, all the story in the Pentateuch, he's saying that there's something that happens in the Holy of Holies, right? In the, in, in the presence of the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant that actually, for a moment, makes you clean. It allows you back in. Now, you had to know, like the high priest, year after year, as he's going in, making these sacrifices, he had to be thinking to himself, I have no idea how this, the blood of bulls and goats, is actually making us clean. But he believed that it was. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 10. And it makes it clear that that blood never could make you clean. But it was preparing the way for the blood that would actually make you clean, the blood of a Savior. And where does the story end? Where does the entire account of Scripture actually end? It ends in a garden. See, Moses was telling one story. He wanted us to see that there was a coming, a Savior. And do you notice Eve actually believes this? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. We're almost done. Eve believes the promise so intently of what God has just promised... That after she gives birth to Cain, what does she say? Verse 1, Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now the language here in the Hebrew is kind of weird. Uh, it's almost like man, I have gotten this man child, right? She's not saying, uh, she's saying that she's, she's gotten the man. She's, she thinks this is the one. This is the Savior of the world. This is the one that God just promised that would come and crush the head of Satan. She so believed the promise of God that she thought Cain was it. And how does Moses actually tell you that Cain isn't the one? Well, Cain kills his brother Abel. So at this point in the story, you've got four people, Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. And Cain kills Abel, so Abel can't be the Savior of the world. And Cain can't be the Savior of the world either because he just murdered his brother. You see, what, what's happening here? Moses wants you to know that this is not the guy. Cain's not the guy. He's busted up. Not only that, but his entire line becomes busted up. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 23. Lamech, the son of Cain. Here in this little poetry section of verse 23 and 24, he said, Lamech said to his wives, Adal and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He's saying this goes from bad to worse very quickly. He said Cain kills a man, uh, and then his offspring is, is then bragging about being worse than Lamech, or being worse than Cain. But how does the story end here at the end of Genesis chapter 4? And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, it is God's provision. And after Cain kills Abel, another son, Seth, is given. And it's from Seth that the rest of the story will begin to play out. This is why Luke's genealogy... And in Luke's gospel, he actually goes, traces the line of Jesus back to Seth, back to Adam, who is the son 
of God. But notice in closing here. Verse 26 of chapter 4. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, what Moses is trying to get his readers to understand is this is what you should do. This is what you should do. The church, this is what you should do. This is what we should do. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Only we call upon the name of the Lord in his full name of Jesus. We call upon the Lord knowing that he has come. And he has reigned. This is what I, under, this is what I mean by I say, I want you to see and understand the full depth and rich and the miracle of Christmas. Is the whole story of the scriptures points to Jesus. Moses' point is that you and I should be doing the same thing. His point in the rest of the Pentateuch, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks, was to point people to the Savior. And I'm telling you, the Savior has come. Therefore, rejoice. Therefore, continue to call upon the name of the Lord. There's two implications in closing for us. Number one, you should see what the New Testament writers saw in the Old Testament. You should see what the New Testament writers saw in the Old Testament. This is the way Jesus actually wants you to read the Bible. Number two, your heart should burn with great joy and hope that Christ has come. The promises here in Genesis 1 through 4 has been fulfilled. Church, we should rejoice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your love and kindness to us. Lord, we thank you that we have the ability to call upon the name of the Lord and know that our sins have been forgiven. To know without a shadow of a doubt that you are real. And we no longer have to go to a temple to see you. We no longer have to enter into the holy of holies to be forgiven, but rather our bodies now are the temple of God because you fill us. You take up residence inside of us. And one day, at the end of all of time, Father Lord, you will dwell with your people fully again as it was in the garden. But we long for that day. We pray that we would continue to be about the work of the kingdom this morning and reflecting your glory and making uh, offsprings physical and spiritual follower. We want to see people come to Christ to be, uh, to be made one, made right with you. I pray you would encourage us in that, all because of what actually happened at Christmas. Father, I pray you encourage our hearts. Make us love you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray.